Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Justin Hudnall. You know, between a, a bottle of Jack Daniels and a Minolta, there's nothing a woman won't do. <laughs> that and more. But first, this is one of our two Pledge Drive episodes for the Max Fun Drive of 2014. If you don't know, Risk is a member of MaximumFun.org, an extraordinary network of high-quality podcasts. Risk relies on listener support. And March 17th through March 28th, 2014, are the best weeks of the year to pledge your support. Because there's so many wonderful gifts to get for it, including bonus episodes of Risk. And understand, your donation will directly support Risk. You'll be able to earmark your contribution for Risk. Listen, a lot of people put so much of our hearts and minds into this show, not to mention so many hours of hard work for almost five years straight without vacations from the weekly schedule. And there's no replacing risk. I mean, you might enjoy some of the other narrative-based podcasts out there, especially the ones with the huge budgets, the huge connections, and the huge full-time staffs on NPR. But can you hear such unfiltered, such courageously honest and raw storytelling on those shows as on Risk? No. Risk is a unique and important and growing voice in the cultural landscape. Each week, you, the Risk fans, write in to say, this show changed my life. This show reminds me about what it means to be human in ways that most people are afraid to talk about. This show gives me hope or has opened my mind. Look, even I feel that way. Just listening to the content we're editing together week after week, I find it cathartic and joyful. It makes me feel more connected to my fellow human beings. Not to mention that it's entertaining as hell. So, please, go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Become a member. Or if you already are one, upgrade and you'll have a wonderful assortment of pledge gifts to receive for your generosity that are listed there when you go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. You can donate at a range of levels from $5 a month to $200 a month. Most choose the $10 or $20 or $35 levels. And now is the time to donate. Because if Risk fans come out for us during this pledge drive... Maximum Fun will make sure that Risk is well compensated this year. And speaking as a guy who can very barely afford his rent while living 45 minutes from Manhattan, who has no health or dental insurance, and who can't afford to pay his monthly bills without special payment plans for most of them, but who works his ass off day and night to keep this show running, I would very much appreciate if you who love the show came through to help us keep it afloat. Between March 17th and March 28th, 2014, please go to MaximumFun.org and click on Donate to become a member or to upgrade today. We will be so, so grateful. Now here's the show.
kids, this this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Fuck Monster behind me now. And why not? If it was going to be anyone behind me now, it might as well be Fuck Monster. This episode this week is live from San Diego. We are so thankful to Amy Lasusky and Finest City Improv for hosting us in San Diego. We had such a wonderful time there. In a little bit, we're going to hear from writer Joy Keller. But before that, writer, actor, comedian Tommy Gallen is going to share a story to kick us off. Here he is now, live from San Diego. It's Tommy Gallen with a story we call Just Commit. I'm sitting on an airplane chair, and I feel like the angel of death has his arms around me. My wife is sitting next to me, and my three-year-old son is sitting next to her, and I've just puked into the little paper bag that's conveniently placed in the front of my seat. And I promise myself I am never going to drink this much again. And yeah, that's, it's a promise that we make to ourselves. The first time we drink, that promise is I'm never going to drink again. Uh, but the promise evolves. Um, and so the first time I made the promise was the first time I drank. I was 11 years old. And it was my fifth grade graduation. The ceremony was over. And I still remember the suit, the white suit, the white shirt, the tie, the blazer. It was all crisp. And I'm outside. I didn't want to let this suit go. I felt so just cool being a grown-up and, and wearing the suit. And I'm outside playing basketball with my cousins, and, and my cousin John turns to me and he tells me, hey, man, it's your graduation. You should see if you can drink some alcohol. And I think that sounds like a great idea. I mean, adults have been hiding this from us for years. It must be fantastic. So I go to my mom and I ask her if I could have a sip of alcohol to celebrate the occasion, and she says yes. And so I do. I have a sip every single drink I can get my hands on. And I remember going back outside and playing basketball like a college freshman playing pool, just thinking I'm the best. I'm shooting shots and I'm hitting them and I'm missing some, but one of them hits the garage roof and bounces into the pool. And I've got the confidence that it's going to save the day. I'm going to be a hero. I climb up onto the side of the pool and I crawl over and I reach out and the basketball's right at my fingertips and I fall directly into the pool with my suit on, the white shirt, and I feel the cold and the darkness and it's extremely dark because it's just the end of the season and the pool cover was still on the pool and it engulfs me and I go deeper into the pool and it black and it tastes like green because there's still algae <laughs> and I hear a splash and I feel this and I gr- it's a hand grabbing me and I'm being pulled out and it's my mom and she walks me back inside through the party through this walk of shame of my aunts and my uncles and my grandparents and, 
The first time I make this promise and the first time I get drunk is also the first time I black out. Um, and it's reiterated to me the next day that I vomited so much that specks of vomit actually hit the ceiling in my room. And through the vomit, I promised my mom I am never going to drink again. Yeah, and I, and I don't. I don't drink again that much. You know, a little experimenting in high school, but I don't really get drunk again until college. College, first time I get drunk in college is on tequila. Long, long, long story short, I do remember throwing up that night and having my, my, um, my roommate holding my hair over the garbage. But the promise this time was a little different. This time the promise was, this is great. I promise to get better at this. <laughs> like a bodybuilder who can bench 400 pounds and feels great because next time it's going to be 405. Every drink that brings me closer to getting drunk and throwing up means next time that won't be so bad. But we all have our limits. And later in college, I found myself, I can't tell you what happened that night, but the next morning, I remember waking up to the sun rising over the dashboard of a car. I'm in the passenger seat, and the sun opens up my dehydrated eyes, and I realize this isn't my car. I don't own a car. And I look next to me, and there's a guy sleeping in the driver's seat. And I don't know him either. There's a dollar bill on his lap. So I take that dollar bill and I put it in my pocket. Then I wake, then I wake him up. And I say, hey, man, do you know how I got here? He goes, who the fuck are you? <laughs> like, like, look, I don't know how I got here. I don't know what's going on. Do you know anything about how this happened? And he's like, no. I was like, can you give me a ride back to campus? Get the fuck out of my car. So I get out of his car, and it's freezing. And I think to myself, this is fantastic. <laughs> I can't wait to tell people this story. It's just great. And if this is what alcohol is going to bring me, I promise to never make a promise again. And I don't for years. Many, many drunken tales come in and out of my life until we flash forward to June. It's Friday the 13th, 2008. I'm coming back from the Cherry Lane Theater where my comedy troupe fucked uh, F-U-C-T. We have just done a, uh, a, a show at the Cherry Lane Theater, and I'm heading home, and I shouldn't have been driving. This time it was my car. I'm on 6th Avenue in Manhattan driving south, and there's incredible traffic. The lights are all green, so I figure there must be an accident, and sure enough, the next thing I see are police lights, but it's not an accident. The traffic's narrowing. It's a DWI stop. And I get up to the stop, and the cop leans right into the window, past the steering wheel, into my face, and says, you've been drinking tonight, son? And I lie. I tilt my head to the side to not breathe in his face. <laughs> no, officer. <laughs> Where are you coming from, son? Cherry Lane Theater. What show did you see? Fucked. <laughs> License and registration take my wallet out. I start pulling my driver's license out. All right, son, put it away. Have a nice evening. 
get away with it totally. I get home at about three in the morning. At 7 a.m., my wife's water breaks. Had I been arrested that night, I would have spent the entire weekend in jail and missed my son's birth. So I made a new promise. I decided I was going to quit drinking for a little bit just to see what that was like. It had been a good 20-year run at that point since I started at 11. <laughs> and um, so I decided at the end of the year, when January comes around, I'll give myself a few more months, when January comes around, I'm going to do a full year of no drinking. And I did it. And not only did I do it, when I got to the end of the year, I felt great. So I just hung tight for like another four months. We went on a vacation, my wife and I and my son, and on that vacation, I decided, I've got this. I mean, I've been sober for 14 months. It really hasn't been that big of a deal. No shakes, no withdrawal, no issues. So why can't I just go back to drinking a little bit? And sure enough, I did, for about a year. It's the night before our big trip to Texas, which we always fly down with the family, my wife and my son. And my wife tells me before I leave for work that day, Listen, when you get done with work, don't drink too much because we've got to pack. We've got this trip tomorrow. And so I have to go to the People's Improv Theater to work. I have to take a stop and pick up a MacBook Air for my wife. Then I've got to shoot up to Fordham University at Lincoln Center to do a friend's stage reading. Then after that, it's back down to the Cherry Lane for rehearsal and then back home to pack. After work, I'm sitting at the bar at the pit and I'm having a few drinks and my brother walks in. And he makes some comment to the bartender. I don't even remember what the comment was, but I remember how it made me feel. It was something totally benign, like, oh, Tommy's having another drink, huh? Showing him how much you could put down. Something really silly like that. But something inside of me turned, like, dark. And I felt, you know what? I don't want my college persona to be my current persona. I, and I got pissed off. And instead of sharing that with him and getting it off my chest... I decided I'm going to show you how much I can drink. And I drank about five beers there before we headed up to the staged reading. And when I got to the staged reading, my buddy who was doing it handed me a bottle of wine for the row. I didn't share it with the row. Uh, in about an hour, I drank that bottle of wine. And then to really show my brother, I ditched him. And I took a cab down to the Cherry Lane Theater by myself. And I proceeded to pour myself a glass of scotch in a pint glass. And I drank that, and then I stole a cigarette. And I hadn't had a cigarette in five years. And I left, and I started smoking the cigarette, and I got halfway through, and I realized, I don't have my wife's computer that I brought earlier today. So I backtracked, and I followed my steps, and it was back at the theater. Thank God, I found it, I got home, but now it's about midnight, and I'm drunk. Super duper drunk, and my wife is unhappy. <laughs> Super fucking unhappy. <laughs> and she's just talking about packing and airplanes. And I'm like, just relax. I've got this. Take a shower. I'll pack. So she takes a shower. I pack. I put the luggage right by the door to leave. She comes out of the shower. Same unhappy face. She sees the bags at the door and says, I want to see how you packed. <laughs> this infuriates me. Why do you need to see how I packed? You've got to point out how I did something else wrong, that I didn't put the underwear next to the sock. What could I have possibly done wrong to pack? 
And to tell you the truth, I couldn't tell you. I could have packed the dog for all I knew. I had no idea what I packed, how I packed. So we open up the bag, and as it turns out, my strategy for packing was to take my dresser drawer out and turn it upside down into the luggage. So I had one bag filled with underwear and socks and three t-shirts because t-shirts were in the second drawer. I had no pants. I packed nothing of my wife or son's clothes. And so... What seemed the most fitting was to go out on the front porch and cry. Um, I don't know if I was crying because I felt bad or because I felt like if I cried, I would manipulate her from anger to feeling pity. (laughs) But I cried. And it was a real cry. It felt like it was really, really hanging on me. That blackness, that darkness that I felt earlier in the day when I had started drinking, it had expanded. And she sent my brother out to talk to me. And I explained to him the comment and blah, blah, blah. And I could see it in his face that he really felt bad. But it wasn't his fault. This was totally on me. I went back in and I apologized. And at this point, I had about three hours to sleep this off, which was impossible. Um, The next morning, I wake up, force as much water as I can into me, as much Advil, just to stumble to the airport. I've heard that they don't let drunk people on airplanes, and I think that's not 100% true. Um, So I'm sitting on the airplane, and I've got this puke bag in my hand, and I have to do something with it now. So I walk to the front of the plane, and I just hand it to a flight attendant. I say, here. I figured she's seen these before and knows what to do with them. And at that second, I realize the airplane door hasn't shut yet. And this is going to be a really long flight. So I promised myself I wouldn't drink that much anymore. And about a week later, it's my birthday, and I'm at the pit in in Manhattan. My brother and I have birthdays very close, so we did a joint birthday party there. The owner of the pit, Ali, we get into a conversation, and we just start talking about drinking, and I could already feel myself drinking too much that night, and he just tells me something. I tell him this whole story, and he tells me, look, whatever you're going to do, if you're going to cut down your drinking, just commit to it. If you're going to quit drinking, just commit to it. And being an improviser, the idea of commitment and committing to something really, really resonated with me. And so I decided to just commit, and I didn't have another drink. And it's been about two and a half years now. And the thing is, every time I go to a party or any time I go someplace where there's alcohol and I'm offered a drink, people say to me, why don't you drink? And most recently, somebody said to me, you want a drink? And I said, no. He goes, are you an alcoholic? And I said, no, of course not. And then I kind of half explained this story But that's the thing. The thing that I hate to say is that word alcoholic. And I don't know, maybe I'm in denial. Uh, Maybe I'm just somebody who had a bunch of crazy years behind me and now it's kind of all done because I've got kids and a wife and a life. But the thing that I do know is that when I compare my life and those experiments of time that I didn't drink compared to the experiments of time where I did, I've just got a much happier outlook and a much happier family and At least for now, I think I'm going to stick with that. Thank you.
Hansen. Awesome. The next storyteller I would like to bring to the stage, she is a writer and editor, and she works with something called Tantra Theater in San Diego. She does improv here. You can find her at renegadejoy.com. Please welcome to the stage, Joy Keller. So when I was 21 years old, I moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Los Angeles, California, and my very first day there was the day of the Rodney King riots. I loved it. I thought it was great. It was perfect because that's how I felt on the inside. All the chaos and all the entropy just perfectly symbolized what was going on inside me. And I'd found my Mecca. I'd spent the previous year working as a stripper at Temptations Adult Entertainment in Atlanta, which was the titty bar capital of the world at the time. (laughs) And a lame attempt to get myself back into college, which was the biggest goal of my life. I moved out of the house when I was 17, a, a very poor family, and I just felt that college would be my ticket out of poverty, and it meant the world to me. I wanted to make something of myself, and I wanted to prove to my parents that I could do it. So I put myself through two years of college, and it was hard, and I thought that stripping would make it easier, but it's not easy to work from 8 o'clock at night until 4 o'clock in the morning, and then get up five hours later and talk about comparative literature. So it didn't work out. After a year of stripping, I realized if I continued pole dancing to Nirvana songs, I was probably going to be a co-core by the time I was 25, and I just needed a change. And so that's why I moved to L.A. <laughs> I lived on a 28-foot sailboat with a friend of mine from high school. And everything was handy-dandy. It was fine for a month or two. Walking around barefoot, wearing my Daisy Dukes and my Jägermeister T-shirt. But you could only get so tan. And I'd run out of money. And I was used to having a stash of cash on hand. And I was so broke. Back then, they used to send sample cereal boxes through the mail. And I was stealing those from my neighbors. I was starving. (laughs) So I decided to get a job. And I got the paper out. And I read it. We did that too back then. And there's a classified ad. The ad was, get paid to meditate. I thought, that's fabulous. Get paid to meditate? There can't be any strings involved in that, right? And and it's way better than popping your coochie. (laughs) So I called, and I met this woman named Anne at Jerry's Famous Deli in Marina Del Rey, and over a hot bowl of matzo ball soup, she didn't tell me how I was going to make money meditating, but she did tell me about this man, this teacher, whom she had been studying with named Rama, otherwise known as Frederick Lenz from San Diego, California. This man taught a special blend of American Zen Buddhism and computer programming. (laughs) And he was the only enlightened Westerner in the world. And if you studied with him, you could become enlightened too, in this lifetime. You know, I didn't know what to think about that. I was, I'd grown up Southern Baptist and left all that behind, but she gave me a $100 bill and told me that she did that for anyone who was interested in working with Rama. And she also invited me to this black tie gala affair 
at the Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills. And I'm not going to say no to that. So I, I took the $100. I bought some groceries and a party dress. Two days later, Anne um, picked me up in her Datsun 280Z, and off we go. <laughs> <laughs> and I was mesmerized. I mean, I'm a country girl. Seeing this uh, Four Seasons Hotel, it was the Grammys were going on. There were parties everywhere. I was starstruck. On the way in, I had to sign a waiver. There are two Tibetan dragons at the top, and I, I had to verify that I was between the ages of 18 and 29, and that I wouldn't sue Rama, Frederick Lenz, or Advanced Systems, Inc. You'd think that'd be a red flag, but everyone else was doing it, so why not? There were about um, 200 people there. About 50 of them were Rama's students, and they were all either computer programmers, computer analysts, or systems architect. And they were very nice and very smart um, and just had their shit together. And all the rest of us were between the ages of 18 and 29 <laughs> <laughs> apprentices. And we were all vying for spaces in Rama's community. I didn't know what anything meant. I just knew that I loved the tropical fruit topiaries. There was an amazing gourmet spread, and I had a raging eating disorder at the time. I was in heaven. <laughs> and everyone was so nice. So we're about midway through the meal when this synthesized rock music starts to play and everyone just stops mid-sentence and all eyes are at the back of the room. And in comes Rama. He floats from the corner of the ballroom and he's this tall, lanky man with his crazy, curly, Kenny G hair and um, he just talked. He talked about life. He had this nasally voice, and he talked about current events, and he was funny, and he was witty, and he was charming, and he just held us all in the palms of his hands. And then he asked us to meditate with him. So I closed my eyes and pretended to know what I was doing, and within about three minutes, I started feeling this warm sensation in my belly and then it started to spread throughout my entire body my cells were spinning and I, I was buzzing and I felt like I was going to actually float off my chair so I opened my eyes and I was assaulted with this tangible golden light it was like a sun soup it actually felt like you could just reach out and grab a handful of it and then I noticed although I was at the back of the ballroom I had a direct line of vision to Rama, and he was levitating about a foot off the ground. And I looked around me, and everyone else was either, they had their eyes closed, or they didn't see what I was seeing, or they didn't notice it, or it was just something that was a Rama thing that he did. Um, I don't know, maybe I was hypnotized, could have been LSD, but I had done LSD, and this did not seem like LSD to me. <laughs> Party tricks aside, I felt amazing. I, my malaise had melted. My depression had disappeared. I actually gave a shit about life for a change. I felt like I could be someone. I felt like I was no longer lost, that I had found some place to be. Now, whatever this person, whatever these people had to offer, I wanted a part of it because I felt like a new person. So I kept going back to these affairs. They happened about once or twice a month at the Four Seasons. Anne sponsored me. I also started helping with the recruiting. And on one such occasion, I saw Rama in an unguarded moment. 
And I just walked right up to him, held out my hand, and said, hi, I'm Joy. He paused, but it wasn't a pregnant pause. He was just taking me in. He was looking at me. And he grabbed my hand and said, hello. And we talked for about three to five minutes, just about my aspirations. I had wanted to be a model, and I would also wanted to go into magazines, which I did later on in life. We talked about our past lives. We both agreed that it didn't really matter all that much what your past lives were, and ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I, fe- <laughs> I felt funny and smart, and he made me feel pretty. It was a magical moment. And then I turned around, and Anne was standing there like a mad school marm. She took me aside, and she scolded me. She said, no one ever touches Rama. You just can't touch him, I guess because you would infect him with your humanity. But he had touched me. He had taken my hand. We had a thing going, a repartee. But then she shifted. And she said, Rama only connects physically with women who have a particular type of karma. And you must have that karma, Joy. You are a chosen one. And I thought, wow, I'm a chosen one. I didn't know what that meant. But I knew that it had to mean that he liked me. Rama liked me. And if someone this important liked me, I had to take the next step. And I did. And the program worked like this. If you wanted to study with Rama, you had to work with computers. It was highly encouraged that you work with computers. Because it makes total sense, really. It did at the time. If you're a computer programmer, especially in the early 90s, you made a lot of money. The more money you make, the more freedom you have to pursue your spirituality. And also... um, pay Rama a huge sum of money. (laughs) Beginning, you would pay him $1,000 a month, minimum. But in exchange, you got to sit with him and get on the short path to enlightenment in this lifetime. (laughs) And as you were programming, you could live as a monk in the world. Like Computer programming helped you get into this meditative zone, like this sausage casing of nirvana. And... That meant that even if you did have to go into the office, you would be like, your language is, and you're just in your thing, and no one, you didn't have to interact with anyone. You could just be in your Rama zone. You weren't supposed to have friends out of the community, and you were never supposed to talk to your family. But that was okay with me. This was going to be my new family. So I enrolled in Computer Learning Center in downtown L.A., which was the last thing that my high school counselor would have recommended for me. I'm a writer. I'm an editor. I'm a performer. I'm an artist, but I I had to do this. I had to do this because I was a chosen one. (laughs) Stripping didn't work out, so here we go. (laughs) But after a month, I I think I barely got through the binary system, and I, I lost it. I hated computer programming so much. I hated it. And my body was actually, I was sick. My kidney was failing. I was miserable. You know, I'd moved in with two of the other ladies at the time who were in the community, and I saw how great their lives were, and I saw how much they loved Rama. And Rama was God. If the sunset was beautiful, it was because of Rama. If you didn't get a parking ticket, it was because of Rama. Rama was God. Rama was everything. And their lives were steady. There were no ups. There were no downs. They had lots of money. Everything was great. That wasn't happening for me, and I couldn't understand why. And I had to think that it was because I wasn't good enough. 
I wasn't good enough. I wasn't pretty enough to already be on his yachts, traveling around the world with him, so fuck it. So I just packed everything in my car one morning, and I left. And I lived out of my car. Over the years, I um, you know, eventually finished college. But I always wondered about Rama, and I always wondered what would happen if I'd stayed. I did some research, and I learned some things. I learned that one of the people in the community had committed suicide. I learned that a lot of women had come forth with allegations of sexual abuse. I learned that this community was officially defined as a cult. (laughs) And I learned that he had an $18 million estate. Even though some of these things were very dubious, I still felt like I'd fucked up because I couldn't program a goddamn computer. I wouldn't be enlightened. (laughs) And then... One day in April 1998, Rama put on a suit and tie, and he put his dog's collar around his neck. He loved his dogs, his Scotty dogs. They were everything to him. And he overdosed on phenobarbital, and he jumped off a dock at his private lake. That's where they found him. And my first thought was, holy shit, Like, what are these people going to do now? Because he was their world. How are they going to be able to function? And I, I was concerned about them. And then my second thought was, wow, if I'd stayed in this cult, what could have transpired? Because there was a female follower with him that night. He was also drugged up. Could that have been me as a potential chosen one? Could we have all got involved in some sort of crazy phenobarbital suicide pact? And that's when I had this wash of gratitude. And I realized that, yeah, my self-esteem was abysmally low lower than the bar needed to stay in a cult that preyed on low (laughs) self-esteem. But my intuition was also working for me. That's why my body was breaking down. So the combination of my intuition and my low self-esteem, it made a good pair. And it enabled me to get out of a situation that could have set my life on a totally different trajectory. And I instead had found the freedom and the happiness and eventual place in life that I am now. Thank you.
This is risk. This is big data behind me now. And we just heard from Joy Keller. I want to take a few moments here now to run you through some of these amazing gifts that you can get if you do become a member at MaximumFun.org or if you upgrade your membership. For a $5 per month membership, you get access to bonus content from all sorts of Maximum Fun shows, including two bonus episodes of Risk live stories that we've never aired on the podcast before. For a $10 per month membership, that, that bonus content, plus an 18-month mini Max Fun calendar featuring art by Megan Lynn Cott <laughs> with all of your favorite Max Fun hosts playfully rendered as cats. For a $20 per month membership, everything I've mentioned before, plus the Max Fun Morning Essentials Kit. Now, this includes a bag of Tonks coffee, a bar of stack soap and a uh, a rocket mug you know max fun has that fantastic little rocket logo so a mug with that on it thanks so much to our friends at tonks coffee and stack soap for that for a 35 dollar per month membership you get a pair of rocket engraved highball glasses for 100 dollars per month membership in the inner circle it's the monthly culture club of Max Fun. For $200 per month, a free registration on the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival cruise. And there's more. So get to MaximumFun.org, click on the button that says Donate, and get in on our pledge drive between March 17th, 2014, and March 28th, 2014. This pledge drive is what gets us through the year. The more that Risk fans come through, the more likely that I will one day be able to get back to the dentist and salvage at least a few of my teeth. Go to MaximumFun.org, hit the donate button, and become a member or upgrade today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from storyteller Justin Hudnall, but before that... A story from the scientist, Leslie Jones. Here she is now with a story we call How Nick's Mind Works. I'm 18 years old laying on my back, staring at the wall, a poster featuring a band called The Insane Clown Posse. (laughs) I'm in my boyfriend's bedroom, and he's on top of me, fucking me. And I am laying there, patiently waiting for him to finish. (laughs) Now, it's not his fault. He's doing the best he can. However, unfortunately for him, all I can think about as I stare into the festively painted face of Shaggy 2-Dope is how much I wish he would stop. 
just stop what he's doing and instead slap a pair of ice-cold, hard police-issue metal handcuffs onto my wrist, pull my hands up above my head, spit on me, slap my face a couple times, call me a dirty, dirty little slut, then flip me onto my back, give me the sound spanking a dirty slut like me deserves, spread my pink cheeks and really go to town on my tight little asshole. Unfortunately for me, that's not going to happen today or any other day for that matter because he's already told me several times that he's not into any of that dirty, disgusting, kinky stuff. It's gross. So instead, I pull on my shirt. We watch an episode of South Park and I tell him, babe, I got to go to work. Now, I know the scene I just described sounds sad. It was. But to be honest, I didn't let it be that big of a deal at the time. I mean, sure, it was a little disturbing to me that I had to conjure up this vivid imagery of myself being verbally degraded and physically harmed to gain any level of sexual arousal, but why try to solve a problem that's so easy to hide? And besides, I figured if I told anyone about these feelings or thoughts that they'd just try to stick me in a mental institution or never talk to me again. So I, I pushed these feelings into the back of my head, as usual, and drove to work. Work for me at the time was a place called Movie Max Cinemas. There's not much Max about these cinemas. <laughs> They're across the street from a crumbling strip mall, owned and operated by Mormons. Don't laugh. Mormons can own things, too. (laughs) It was... Picture one of those buildings that has been built in the 70s and hasn't changed one tiny bit since. Like a crumbling gray cube with a smaller glass cube in front of it. And this was the box office where I spent about 40 hours a week selling tickets. Um, Don't worry. I like confinement. Um, so that day I worked my usual shift eight hours around 10 o'clock it was time to clock out so I went to the back office and there I ran into one of the projectionists his name was John Mitchell and he was placing a DVD onto the manager's desk I hadn't seen this um, DVD before but it looked interesting it was a rear view of a woman in these sexy stockings but it didn't have like that porny vibe to it it was more like an indie film so i asked him uh what it was and he said it's not mine i am returning it to nick nick was the general manager of the movie theater i said oh well what's it about john and he absolutely refused to divulge any details of the plot to me instead he said you know what why don't you borrow it? Just put it back on his desk tomorrow. He won't miss it an extra day. Besides, it'll tell you everything you need to know about how his mind works. Let me be honest with you guys. At the time, I gave very few shits about the inner workings of Nick's mind. Um, he, he was the general manager of the movie theater, as I said before. Um, I was trying to think of a celebrity I could maybe compare him to or like some point of reference for you guys but all I could come up with honestly was a bear <laughs> now no, not, not the gay bear with the leather harness that you would find in the Castro no no not that kind of bear or not like a scary grizzly bear either he wasn't that hairy more like a 
B-list Disney movie character like the middle bear in Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Uh, very, very non-threatening. He had uh, like a side part before Mumford and Sons made that cool... Um... I had figured out a few facts about his life. I figured he had to be a member of the Church of the Latter-day Saints because uh, you had to be to let rise to any level of power in that establishment. I mean, come on, one of the assistant managers was like a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> and she was also more Mormon. Um, I knew that he had to be some amount of years older than me, probably between five and ten. One, because he had figured out facial hair grooming by that point in life, something many of my peers had not. And also, um, he had a new car, which meant he somewhat had his life together. But mostly, you guys, he was boring, like painfully boring. He mumbled a lot, and he was my boss. So really, the only time I paid attention to him was when I was like, breaking the rules by gorging on stolen dipping Dots in the closet or sneaking up to the roof to smoke weed. So I honestly, I honestly almost didn't take the DVD home, but I was like, ah, oh, maybe I can blackmail him with some of this shit. So I grabbed it, and I took it home to my parents' house where I lived at the time to the bedroom that I shared with my sister. Her bed was like a couple of feet away. And I um, popped it into my laptop, put on some headphones, and started to watch the movie. Now, I had read the front of the DVD case on the way home. I saw that it was called Secretary, starring Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader. Um, who here has seen Secretary? All right, okay. Now, I had not read the back of the case, however. If I had, it would say something along the lines of a dominant lawyer hires a young woman to be his secretary and helps her discover a submissive side of herself she did not know existed. But again, I was completely ignorant of the plot, so I just started watching the movie, and I was thinking, wow, this girl has pretty low self-esteem. Good for her, though. She is going to typing school. This is going to work out. Initiative. Um, oh, wow, this uh, lawyer is hiring her even though she has no work experience. Good for the economy, good for him. Uh, this will work out well. And then I started getting worried because she wasn't doing a great job. She was making some mistakes. And then there's a scene where she's made a few too many mistakes, and he calls her into his office. He has a piece of paper on his desk, and he's circled all the mistakes she's made with a bright red blunt tip sharpie, which is kind of a blunt instrument for proofreading of that kind, but I'm no judger. Um, and instead of firing her like he probably should have, he instead makes her pull up her skirt, put her, both of her hands palm down onto his desk, and you guys, he walks behind her and starts spanking her. And spanking her. And spanking Spanking her and spanking her and spanking her and spanking her. Oh my god, I have to explain. I have been a creepy, sex pervert, kinky person for as long as I can possibly remember. When all the other five year old girls were watching Aladdin, waiting for him to take her on the magic carpet ride, I was sitting there cross legged, my nose an inch from the TV screen, holding out for the scene where Jafar puts her in those magical golden shackles and. and and imprisons her, imprisons her just like he did her tiger friend. And, and, and as for movies like Peter Pan, 
fuck Wendy, you guys. It was all about that scene where Captain Hook ties Tiger Lily to that pole in the cave where the tide is rising. Very elaborate scheme, but also super hot. Because she, she is tied to this cage. There's ropes all around her arms, and the water is slowly rising. And the only person who can rescue her is Peter. She is completely helpless. And that gave me chills. But my favorite movie my favorite movie as a kid and maybe still now was Snow White not because of the magical forest and the cute animals although they were adorable and not because of the dwarves although they are pretty hilarious especially dopey but um because of the scene in the end where the evil queen puts her in that crazy apple coma and she is laying there encased in glass completely completely helpless and anyone can do anything they want to her just anyone can walk up and do whatever they want to her body she's no longer a person she is a helpless object and I don't know if I associated the feelings that that gave me with sex at the time but I knew they were bad and I probably shouldn't tell any grown-ups about them and I hope (laughs) that they would go away with time but unfortunately in high school they all got worse it like the feelings are so much more intense like i don't read twilight i don't know what normal 15 year old girls fantasize about but i remember sitting in u.s history and we're learning about the civil war but my thoughts drifted to something a little bit more sexy i was thinking maybe i'll be walking home alone one day past a dark alley or let's be real people this is a suburb past a cul-de-sac and and a car full of hooligans will pull up and they'll jump out and be like give us all your money i'll be like i'm only 15 i don't have any money they'll be like it's fine we'll take your body instead and i'll be like oh no no help and their leader will like jump out throw me onto the ground and be like rub my face in the dirt and be like you like that dirty girl you like that you're liking your face all dirty i'll be like oh no please stop please stop but they won't stop instead two more guys will like rip open my shirt and start fondling my breast one guy per breast very specific fantasy and i'm like please please help me help me but no one will hear me scream and And I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there just a few years later watching the secretary trying so hard to keep both hands above the blanket because, again, my 15-year-old sister is sleeping like two feet away from me. I can't masturbate. Just thinking. This is just basking in all the feelings of dominance and submission and the sexualization of pain and the joy that can come from serving another person and thinking if this movie exists there must be other people who are into this it it can't be just a leslie thing (laughs) so i'm sitting there and suddenly it hits me this is how nick's mind works I mean, it has to be. That's what the projectionist said, right? (laughs) Suddenly, my boring Mormon side-parted manager had become the boss of my dreams. (laughs) I went to work the next day, and everything had changed. I was sitting in my glass box office, hands on the desk, 
just waiting for him to show up. My heart was racing, my palms were sweaty, but when he showed up and we were finally alone, a few hours later, I didn't say anything. I was ashamed. I mean, what if John the Projectionist was just playing a prank on me? It, it seemed like something he would do. And what if Nick wasn't into any of this kinky, weird stuff and even if he was it wasn't any of my business and he didn't need to know the weird stuff that I was into so I just stayed silent and weeks went by and months went by and only a couple things changed first of all I started listening to the things that Nick was mumbling and with time I realized that he was actually a pretty funny guy but more than that he was the most caring person I had ever met in my life he was a sweet person, and he really cared about other people. And there was a little bit of sexual tension, I'm not going to lie, that was rising between us. <laughs> to be honest, in retrospect, it was mostly one-sided, I think. <laughs> but um, sometimes he would ask me to do things, like he was my manager, he had to. And he'd be like, oh, Leslie, can you do like just a real quick bathroom check? I hate to ask, but just make sure that we're not out of paper towels. And I would remember this scene in The Secretary where the lawyer pretends that he threw away an important document and he makes his secretary dig through this dumpster that's outside his window just so he can like watch her degrade herself and get filthy in servitude to him. And I look, and in my head, I'm like, yes, Nick, yes, I will clean the bathroom for you. I will scrub the toilet with my bare freaking hands. I will, I will lick the floor and I will enjoy every second of it. And so it sounds weird and crazy and psycho, but cleaning the bathroom was my favorite part of work. <laughs> I'd go to work thinking, what is Nick going to ask me to do today? <laughs> so, <laughs> so months went by, and I broke up with that immature juggalo boyfriend who really enjoyed clown-based bands. Good call. I was single again, and one day, it was the middle of summer, and I was getting ready to clean up after Pirates of the Caribbean 2 in Theater 1. And... <laughs> standing there with my little dustpan and my little broom, and I, I knew that the time had come. My heart was racing. My palms were sweaty. I was freaking out in my head, but I knew I had to do something. I knew I had to say something to Nick, so I steeled myself, and I thought of all the other places an unskilled 18-year-old like me could find work. Okay, Cold Stone Creamery, Safeway Supermarkets, Rubio's Fish Tacos. I got this. Plan B. So I start. I forced myself to march into the movie theater, into the back corner where Nick is sweeping up alone. And I look up at him and I say, Nick, yeah, Leslie, how can I help you? Nick. I felt like I was about to pass out. My face was turning red. Nick, I think I have feelings for you. And he looked down at me and he said, Leslie, the feelings are mutual. I was so happy <laughs> and relieved. <laughs> so a couple days later, we went on our first date. Um, we went to see The Pursuit of Happiness at another movie theater because <laughs> that's what you do when you work in a movie theater. And he was super nice. He opened my door for me. He held my hand. He bought me ice cream. But he, nothing 
no talk about kinky weird stuff came up and I was starting to doubt that like the movie was even his it probably was just a prank that John was throwing but and then a couple days later he took me to Olive Garden it was delicious (laughs) when is it not free breadsticks Um, but the best part of the night came a couple hours after he dropped me off at home and we were chatting on AOL instant messenger and then he sent me this picture and it was of his desk, and on his computer desk was a pair of ice-cold, hard, metal, police-issue handcuffs. And it had a caption, and the caption read, These would look nice on you. (laughs) A nice wound. (laughs) And a couple weeks later, I found myself on the floor of his bedroom, and it was a wooden floor. I was acutely aware of this fact because I was naked except for my little lace thong and my chest was covered in clothespins. And these were jammed in between the floor and my body and it hurt, but it felt so good. And I couldn't take them off. I couldn't touch them or feel them because I was hogtied. All I could do was wiggle and my ass was warm and pink because he had given me the sound spanking that I had been craving my entire life a few minutes earlier. I couldn't see if it was pink because I was blindfolded. (laughs) And I looked up at him and I wanted to say, you are amazing. This is so hot. But I couldn't because my mouth was stuffed with my dirty panties and and holding these dirty panties in my mouth was a huge bright red ball gag so big that I was drooling and dripping on the floor I look up at him and I'm like oh because he, he, couldn't, he couldn't understand anything and he looks down at me and he says you look so fucking hot right now my little slut I should give you another spanking you deserve it. And I look up at him and I'm like, oh, because the ball gag. <laughs> he looks down at me and he says, thank you. Thank you. This is so hot. You're making me so happy right now. Thank you. And I looked up at him and I almost started crying, not just from the pain of the clothespins, but because I knew, I knew for a fact this wasn't just a Leslie thing anymore. This was a Nick and Leslie thing. And I would never be alone again. And a couple months later, he got down on one knee and he looked up at me and he said, Leslie. And I was like, yeah, Nick. Leslie, I love you. I looked at him and I said, I love you too because I did. It was amazing. I did with all my heart. And two years later, he got down on one knee again and he said, Leslie, will you marry me? I said, yes, Nick. I will marry you. And it's been eight years. And he has been the best partner I could ever hope for in life. We have the same sense of humor. And we do great couple things all the time. We go camping. We support each other in all our endeavors. We have two cats together. (laughs) Sir Bucky McBuckingham and Gandalf the Grey. And... (laughs) And we seem like any other couple on the outside... But sometimes on a weekend night, I'll be at our local bondage club, (laughs) tied to a St. Andrew's cross, covered in clothespins with a huge butt plug in my ass, saying, I love you. Thank you, master. Thank you. And I 
bet you that we are the only couple on our block with a human-sized cage in our bedroom. So you might want to think twice before showing your kids or your nieces and nephews the filth that is Snow White <laughs> and the Seven Dwarves. <laughs> I was a Pinocchio guy myself because um, he had a part of him that grew and then he went to that amazing island full of other boys and got drunk there. All right. I want to bring our final storyteller to the stage. It's been a real joy working with him. He does stuff here and stuff at SoSayWeAllOnline.com. Please welcome to the stage, Justin Hudnall. Hey, everybody. So my story starts a couple of years ago when I was helping my mom clean out her garage. And this is kind of an archaeological affair with my family because we have a really hard time letting go of the past. Nostalgia will just take on this load and build and build and build until it reaches this critical mass and then it all has to go. And that's what was happening in this instance. The purge was on. And then that's when I found the poster, or to be specific, the posters. At the bottom of a trunk, there's like these six silk-screened posters, handmade advertising an art show by a group called Sirius, spelled S-I-R-I-U-S, just like the constellation. And yes, that is a very hippie name to call yourself. And accordingly, it dated from the 1970s. And on the left-hand side of these posters were the three artists' names. And one of them belonged to my father. So I take the poster in and I show it to my mom and I, I asked her, what's all this about? And she very calmly explains to me that uh, my dad ran a multimedia artist collective in San Diego back in the 70s. So I point out to her that I run a multimedia artist collective in San Diego right now. And all she says is, oh yeah, I know, the parallels are terrifying, and then just walks out of the room. <laughs> and that's as long as any conversation about my dad with my mom has ever gone. And this could have been a really like groundbreaking, mind-altering you know, moment to realize that all along you were just the puppet of parental predestination. But it had happened so many times by this point where it had just kind of become degenerated into like a private cliche between uh, her and I. Like, oh, it's, all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. It's eternal recurrence in a nutshell. And I like to say it that way because it sounds a lot smarter than, than what it was, which was just a cliche after a long line of cliches. And the first one was the one I used to define my life, the first 18 years of my existence, which was, ready for it, you don't miss what you don't have. And I had adopted that for two reasons. The first was because I'd never met my father. Not in person, not, not really even heard that much about him. Uh, he had had some issues with the truth, uh, to put it diplomatically. And this had led my mother to offer him up an ultimatum wherein he could not pay child support if he disappeared and never tried to contact us. And he thought that was a pretty good deal at the time and took her up on it. And so uh, the first time he saw me was the last, which was when I was born in the hospital over there in Hillcrest. All I ever really got out of her about him was that he had been in the Vietnam War. He'd done some self-medicating with drugs afterwards as a result. 
and he'd had a really sensitive artistic disposition like mine. And triangulated somewhere between those three points was the reason he wasn't able to stay around. And the second reason I, I wrapped myself up in uh, you don't miss what you don't have was because I grew up in the shadow of these god-awful, spoiled generation Xers. This indolent generation of the middle class who just coveted any perceived suffering as a way to make themselves seem more interesting. I, li- I put it this way, for those of you who are younger than me. Growing up in the 90s in high school in San Diego was like the Winter Olympics if cutting yourself was a sport. <laughs> Everything looked like a fucking Tori Amos album cover. It was, it was just bobby pins and broken doll parts and these sad little sweaters with holes in them. And... You, you know, the first reaction when you heard something genuinely bad had happened to one of your f- friends was, oh, lucky? <laughs> because it meant you got to act like an asshole with impunity and nobody could ever hold it against you until somebody else came along and, I don't know, knocked you off, had an abortion and topped you. And, and so, uh, the whi- and of course, like the Smashing Pumpkins, right, was their whiny little marching band, and I hated them. So when it was my turn to rebel, I rebelled by being fine. This, this, it was the only thing where you could go at that point was just the opposite direction, which is, no, I'm cool. It was scandalous. Um, and it was this idea, I think, of like, you know, that's what men are like, uh, Stoics. Oh, okay, I'll try that. And, and so I was fine. And it worked for me. 18 years, no problem. Because, and this is self-righteousness to that decision, right? Because it's like, oh, someone has to be okay. It's going to be me. Yeah, yeah, Iwo Jima, modern day, you know, me, emotional warfare. Um, And all of that was going fine until I met Amber Wade. And Amber Wade was this six-foot-tall, Amazon blonde, MVP volleyball player at our high school. And I was this, like, B-list actor in high school drama, right? Like I said, nothing changes. All of this has happened before, all of this will happen again. And she was the girl that I wasn't supposed to get, right? There's always one. There's, like, some unspoken hierarchy. If it was a sitcom, it'd be like, no, you're never a no chance. But I did get her. And here's how I did it. She had an Electra complex on this enormous scale. For, for the homeschoolers out there, that's a lady version of an Oedipal complex. Cool. Um, And I want to I make it clear, I'm not being mean. The reason that statement is true and not mean is because at the ripe age of 27, she became very happily married and recently had a beautiful baby boy with a man who was about five years older than her dad. <laughs> Did you just walk into this show? <laughs> I'm pretty sure a girl just talked about her having her asshole played with like a sandbox. I, if that's where you're going to draw the line... Oh. <laughs> oh, the bears. The bears. Uh, <laughs> that's delicious. Um, if she was cool with it, I was cool with it. It really wasn't a big deal. It was a no judgment thing. You know, she, she liked what she liked. I liked that she knew what she liked. You know, it's like, it's just like anything else at that point. It's like some guys only date Asian chicks, some girls date their dads, whatever. Potato, potato. Uh, <laughs> But the thing about it was that she was so confident about who she was. She was so into her own skin. Um, she knew she was a daddy's girl. But it, the footnote to that is that she was absolutely sure that I had to have issues from growing up in a daddy-free environment. 
And she just pick, 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 pick at me from the moment we met. Like, a, you know, how, how could you have never wanted to track him down? Not out of curiosity, not out of nothing. You just did nothing. You ended up pushing, pushing, pushing. And I, I'm not going to say that I hadn't been curious before I'd met Amber, but hers was like that summer blonde hair that just broke the camel's back. It was like being given uh, this hero's journey to go on. And at the end of it, which is like, oh, I get to be with you. Awesome, I'll embark. And so I started by going home and asking questions. And my mom, from the very moment we started, made it very clear that they weren't welcome. In fact, I remember the thing she said to me when I asked was, I don't know why you'd want to go wasting your time tracking down some old wreck who never thought to send you one birthday card in your whole life. And normally, in our family, this would have just started a drag-down, knockout fight between my mom and I. It was the relationship we had that I couldn't bring myself in that moment to point out that she'd been the one to tell him not to. It's like, you know, when you're a single mother with an only child, you learn how to protect each other's feelings before you even really know that that's what you're doing. And, and that's r- the real reason why I hadn't asked about him sooner, because I didn't want to make her feel guilty. And I could see, now that I was, she did feel guilty. So I stopped. Uh, but my grandmother was more sympathetic. She'd, she'd done a lot of the raising of me while my mom was off at work. And it created this kind of weird relationship between all of us in the family where, like, my grandmother was kind of like the mother to both of us, and my mom and I had, like, an almost sibling relationship. And it gave her leeway to make decisions in times like these when the kid comes around looking for dad. But she was the right one to do it because she was from the Ozarks in, in Arkansas, and Every generation of women on that side of the family had just had their expectations of men lowered with every generation until, like, the bar wasn't even waist high anymore. And, you know, she'd seen shit. Like, she looked like the Dust Bowl, you know? Like, she'd... She, things that happened to her and, and the result, the kind of like beautiful result of all of that was that she just couldn't be angry at anybody she just felt sorry for the whole human race and, and when she ever talked about my dad, all she would say was well, he was a fixer-upper <laughs> which was really accurate and fair, you know uh, and as a southern woman, she had a lot of opinions and one of those opinions was that a, a boy should know his father he wants to. And so to keep that option alive, she had stowed away a copy of his social security number in the dresser drawer. Crafty. And, uh, and obviously, and it became very apparent very quickly when I finally did show up and come around asking for him that she thought about what one might do with that social security number because she had a family friend run a credit check on him, illegal, and we got an address in Waukesha, Wisconsin. No one knows where that is, except for, like, one postal employee. Luckily, though, I knew exactly what to write in the letter that I would send to my father because I'd grown up watching Oprah Winfrey with my grandma. And so I said, I'm not mad, I'm just curious, and I don't want a confrontation, I just want closure. (laughs) Verbatim, Oprah will teach you anything. Put it in a letter, and I sent it off, and it went across the country into the ether. And it wouldn't be until years later that I was told by his new wife of, uh, of about 10 years uh, that she had been the one to actually get that letter. She took it out of the box and opened it up and read it, and that was the first time she learned that I was not the miscarriage he had told her I was. Oh. I know. <laughs> Like I said, issues with the truth. But uh, 
But she gave him an ultimatum, to her credit. She said, okay, I won't divorce you if you get your ass on a plane and go meet your son. And my dad took her up on it, because again, when it comes to women making my dad options and bargains, he's a very, very, very lucky son of a bitch. So I didn't know any of this at the time, though, at 18. All I knew was that like about a week later, I got a letter back, and in it, he, he commended me for my bravery, and uh, we set a time where he could fly out and meet me. We decided around spring, close to when I'd be graduating, was a good idea. The day came. He called from his motel room right off Interstate 8, told me where he was staying. And I got in the car, honestly, with about as much fanfare as you'd go to buy milk. Uh, <laughs> drove over there, looked up his room number, went up the stairs, knocked on the door. It opened, and I looked down to meet my dad. And I did not know until that moment that I had expectations of, of him, but he was not it. <laughs> he was shorter and a chain smoker and more than a little bit of an alcoholic, and he was quiet, which I am not. <laughs> and I, the entire weekend we spent together, I, I can't really account for anything notable that we said to one another, except that I can say that none of it had anything to do with his absence, nothing. We avoided that like the plague. And he just kept it to kind of like quaint anecdotes about himself. The one that does stick out in my head, though, and I think it sticks out because it sounds like the most like what I imagined fatherly advice to sound like. You know, between a a bottle of Jack Daniels and a Minolta, there's nothing a woman won't do. (laughs) I kept that up here until college. (laughs) And then that was it. It was just like talking to any other guy. And as far as I could tell, that's all it was for him, too. And that's okay, right? Not everything has to go like a TED Talk. (laughs) And then he flew away. And I won. I got from this display of dedication to the cause, Amber Wade, alone in my bed with a bottle of vodka. And, And then we're laughing and we're talking and we get down to our underwear and things are going really well. And then I black out. It was the first and only time in my entire life I was just gone to the whole world. And when I wake up, I'm in my tidy whities and, you know, my flaccid dick is out the little hole, like a little little periscope of shame. (laughs) Trying to figure out what's going on. You know, the most dignified way to come to on a Saturday morning at your mom's house. And when I get Amber on the phone to, to figure out what happened, she didn't want to tell me. She's really cagey, she's humming and hawing, but I keep pushing her and I'm pushing her and pushing her. And eventually she says, well, you were, we were laughing, you were telling jokes, you were being funny, doing the whole funny guy shtick, and then, you know, out of nowhere you just, you just started crying. <laughs> and then that kind of turned into screaming, and, and the thing you were screaming was, why wasn't he there? Why wasn't he there? Why wasn't he there? Now, If a man realizes that he's full of shit in the woods and he's alone when he wakes up, he can just kind of go about his business like nothing ever happened because no one's the wiser. But I had got caught, clearly, in a very eerily similar way to my father had gotten caught, you know, proclaiming that nothing in the world was absent when obviously something was. And I couldn't pretend we didn't have anything in common from that moment on. So despite these inauspicious beginnings, Amber and I actually do manage to date and we stay together all the way up until we go off to college, respectively, and are separated. 
But I was distracted for most of the relationship by what this new development meant, this kind of bomb, and I was terrified by what else I'd managed to shove down into the basement. So I tried to talk to him a couple times on the phone, and that didn't really go anywhere. I even went out to see him in Waukesha, and that didn't go anywhere. We just kind of sat and smoked and drank a lot in silence. And, you know, until I finally got the hint to take it from the dating advice book, he just wasn't that into me. It's okay. Not everything has to end like a TED Talk, like I said. But I did get better at drinking around this time. I got better and better at it. And I don't think I was drinking to forget. I think I was drinking to get to know him. It was like every little cocktail was like a little hint at who this guy was. And then that became just kind of the beginning of the road I embarked on to figure out who my father was. I found a way to get myself sent overseas. It was a lot less humid, a lot less dangerous, but dangerous nonetheless. I kind of got fucked up over it a little bit, just like he had. Maybe the baby version of that. The art collective thing happened that I mentioned earlier. But I did stop before I had a kid, because there's a limit to cliches before they just start getting really cheap. And I like to tell this story now because neither of my parents are are any good at dealing with difficult subject matter, and I I know their parents weren't, and I'm sure their parents before them weren't. And I think when when tough things aren't talked about, it creates this kind of debt of silence, right? That eventually someone has to pay off. Maybe you've inherited it somehow on the road, and it's on your lap now whether or not you're going to pass it on or finally pay off that interest of that emotional credit card because otherwise no one's ever going to get healthy. And the other reason I like telling this story is because it gets me laid. Because <laughs> this is my Minolta and Jack Daniels. Thank you. Well, only you and you alone draw me and then leave me leave me wanting more with every line as if I've never wanted any more than what you're giving sleep to dream then wake to see another day with you and I and I myself alone may be among the lonely dreamers Lonely dreamers dream the most of all Though I'm afraid that with the lonely dreams The grass is always greener Is it true that it is only you And only you alone Oh, such is life, such is life For the lonely dreamers Oh, such is life, such is life that is it for this week's episode, folks. This is Matt Susich behind me now from my neck of the woods, Queens, New York. And that last story we heard was from Justin Hudnall. Thanks so much again to San Diego and especially to Amy Lasusky and the finest city improv there. Folks, I want to remind you just one more time how important it is to us. If you've ever considered donating, now is the time to do it. You can help us reach our goal of 1,500 new or upgrading members by donating right now. 
If you're in front of a computer, take a moment and donate. It's easy. If you're on a treadmill or in a car, plan to take a moment once you get home or to the office. Go to MaximumFun.org, click on Donate, and become a member. So many wonderful gifts, including bonus episodes of Risk. Last year during the pledge drive, Risk was kind of new in the Maximum Fun family, and so other shows were raising a lot more money. This year, we're really hoping that Risk fans come through and help us, help us keep things going. There are so many options for how much you can choose to give, so many gifts, but the biggest benefit is having the feeling that you are a part of this, that you are, just like the storytellers on the show themselves, contributing to this exceptional and important and downright entertaining work that we do here. You know there's a huge difference between corporate entertainment and independently produced labors of love like Risk. And one of the biggest differences is that so much of what keeps us running has to be listener support. So once again, the Max Fun Drive lasts from March 17th, 2014 to March 28th, 2014. As soon as you can, go to MaximumFun.org Click on Donate and become a member or upgrade your membership if you already are one. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Because true love, it can break you down or make a life worth living. Oh, and only you and I myself alone must have it all. Oh, only you and I myself alone must have it all. Don't forget to get rest ready! By donating right now! <laughs> <laughs>